take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I'll send the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word uh, that has been given to us to teach, to reprove, to rebuke, to train us in righteousness. We thank you so much for the gift of your gospel, the gift of your son uh, who has died in our place to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to you. We thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Lord, now as your word is proclaimed, we pray that you would uh, bless the preaching of your word unto the conversion of sinners and unto the edification of your people. And we pray that in all these things you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again with our text in John. Uh, we've been working through John uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, and we've seen now in uh, chapter 9, Jesus had healed a man who had been born blind, and we saw how that man had then kind of been sent through the ringer uh, by the Jews, uh, ultimately being kicked out of the synagogue after having been interrogated. Uh, this then is what sets the, the stage for the discussion that follows as Jesus contrasts himself with these leaders of the Jews. Uh, Jesus is the good shepherd, and he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, uh, perhaps also referencing various messianic pretenders that popped up from time to time. Now, we finished last week in verse 11, and so that is where we'll begin this morning. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now Christ, of course, is speaking in metaphor. He is the shepherd and his sheep are his people, his elect, his chosen now, we've already seen the contrast between Christ the Good Shepherd and the thieves and robbers. Uh, the thieves and robbers are those who would ravage the sheep, uh, caring nothing for them, but using the sheep to their own advantage. And here now we get another contrast as Christ says he is the Good Shepherd and he compares himself to the hireling, uh, to the hired hand. So notice the Good Shepherd loves his sheep he says that he loves them so much that he is willing to die for them. And Jesus was not exaggerating when he said this. 
so as not hyperbole, right, exaggerating to make a point, but this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, our good shepherd, did lay down his life for the sheep. He died for us, dying in our place on the cross in order to rescue us, to defeat his and our enemies, sin, death, and Satan. He rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will repent and believe. Uh, There is the good news of the gospel. The good shepherd, because of his great love, did lay down his life for the sheep. And it is precisely at this point that the next contrast is drawn. So notice, the good shepherd is the one who loves his sheep. And he loves them so much that he's willing to die for them. In contrast, then, is the hireling, the hired hand. We see the hireling is willing to work as long as he's getting paid and there's no real danger. But when things get dicey, he's gone. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. They're not his sheep. He doesn't own them. Their death is not his loss. And he doesn't care about them. So why would a hireling risk his own life to save someone else's sheep? He's just here for the paycheck. And in a literal shepherding situation, you probably wouldn't fault the young man for this. Um, But Jesus, again, is not talking about literal sheep and literal shepherds. But again, the sheep are his people. And this description of the hireling is a biting critique of those leaders who had not cared for Christ's sheep as they were supposed to. Those whom God assigns to care for his sheep must be faithful under shepherds. Of course, this is particularly applicable for pastors. You may know the word pastor literally means shepherd. In the New Testament, we see that God assigns elders or overseers, bishops, uh, as leaders within the church. Those are are the words that are used. Um, You can look to either Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3 to see the qualifications for elders. And as scripture describes the job, the role of an elder, the role of an elder, bishop, or overseer is to shepherd the flock of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter writes this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Here's the instruction. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So notice, what's that main instruction Peter gives? Peter says to the elders, your job is to do what? It is to shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the sheep, pastor them. This is the role. This is the assignment. An elder is to shepherd, to pastor. 
And so this is part of why we like to refer to all of our elders as pastor so-and-so, pastor Josh, pastor Brian. An elder is a pastor. Uh, Pastoring, shepherding is the role. It is the job. It is the assignment given to all elders. So then we see from this passage, what is it that Christ desires for his under-shepherds? What must pastors do and be like? Well, from this text, we see that pastors must strive to be like the good shepherd and not like the hireling. And so this means that pastors must love the sheep as Christ loves his sheep. Note again, this was the criticism for the hireling, the hired hand, and that is he flees when the wolf comes because he cares nothing for the sheep. So a faithful pastor, faithful shepherd must love Christ's sheep. So this is one of the best things you can look for when examining men to see if they would make good pastors. Do they love Christ's sheep? Does this man display care and concern for Christ's sheep? Does he have concern for their souls? Is he a man who strives to be a blessing to those in his life and in his church now? Does his love for God express itself in love for the people of God? If not, then whatever his other abilities or qualities may be, right, preaching, teaching, etc., if he does not have love for the sheep, he is unfit to be a pastor. For notice again, the difference between the hireling and the good shepherd in this text is that the shepherd cares for the sheep. He must love them. Now, before we move into what this looks like for pastors, let's just observe for a moment that this is something truly that all Christians must strive for. The very life of a Christian is to follow Christ, to seek to become more like Christ. Christ. And so I ask you, Christian, do you love what Christ loves? Christ loves his sheep. Do you love his sheep? Do you love the church? And not in some abstract way where you say, yes, I love the church or the universal church, but right where you're planted, right where you are, right? The sheep that are right in front of you, that you have covenanted together with, do you love Christ's sheep? Do you love what Christ loves? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1 verse 8. For the saint, the Christian, the one who is growing to love what Christ loves, there is no better place to be than with the people of God. This is our spiritual family. We are united through the blood of Christ. We are members of the same body, stones in the same wall, brothers and sisters in Christ. So may the Lord bless our fellowship and may we all grow to love what Christ loves as he does. Christ loves his sheep. Christ loves his church. Now for all, in order to know the sheep, 
pardon me, in order to love the sheep, you must know the sheep. This is true for everyone, but especially for pastors. The faithful under-shepherd must love like the good shepherd, and in order to do that, he must know the sheep. Look down with me to verse 14. See what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Faithful under-shepherds of the good shepherd must know their sheep. Hebrews says that pastors are those who are going to be uh, held to account. They're going to have to give an account to those sheep that were entrusted to their care. This is part of why uh, we are so big on membership. If we as pastors are going to be held to account for how we shepherded God's sheep, we need to know who are our sheep. Right? Who is God going to hold us accountable for? And so we uh, promote membership uh, as a means of marking out the body, marking out that flock. Um, but in order to love the sheep, we must know them. The good shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. And so shepherds, therefore, must spend time with the sheep. Not to push the metaphor too far, but shepherds must smell like sheep. That is, they must interact with them. They must have some idea of what's going on in their lives. A shepherd who avoids sheep is not a good shepherd. And so this is one area where I do feel we have room for growth. It's been a rather convicting week of sermon preparation. Um, So to our congregation, if anyone feels that they have fallen through the cracks, uh, on behalf of the elders, I am sorry. Uh, We have not been perfect in this area, and so we ask for forgiveness where we failed, as well as for your grace and patience. And secondly, I would also like to encourage you, help us help you. If you have something happening in your life, something big, please reach out to us. If you have something small that you would like prayer for, please reach out to us. Uh, Text us, call us, come over for coffee, uh, fill us in on what's happening in your life and ask us to pray uh, that we may help to shepherd your souls. Now we desire to grow in this. We are striving to love our people. And as we see here, part of that involves knowing our people. To love the sheep, a shepherd must know the sheep. And so too, for the church member, if you would love as Christ loves, if you would love his sheep, you too must know the sheep. You must know your brothers and sisters. We are meant to be more uh, than strangers who happen to sit close to each other once a week, like so many commuters on a bus. Right? We are to be spiritual family. So I encourage you, show hospitality. Uh, attend church functions. Come to the things that the church is doing. Uh, come, maybe help set up. Stay for prayer, Sunday school. Stay for potluck. Uh, The fact is, you simply cannot love the church well if you don't know them. So to love the sheep, you must know the sheep. Now the next thing that we see from this text is that a faithful shepherd must guard the sheep. He must protect the sheep. Notice again, the hireling who cares nothing for the sheep will not fight for them. He will not defend them. The hireling sees the wolf coming and he flees and leaves the sheep alone. 
he will flee when the wolf comes. So that raises this next question, and that is, what are these wolves? Right. Remember, we're not talking about literal sheep. We're talking about the people of God. So what is the wolf that comes to ravage the sheep? I think most commonly in Scripture, this metaphor is employed uh, to describe the false teacher. In Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus warned about false prophets who would come dressed as sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so shepherds, therefore, pastors, must be willing to defend their sheep from false teachings and from the false teachers that would bring them. Now, part of how we aim to do this as pastors is through preaching and teaching. Right? As pastors preach faithfully, his flock is equipped. For the fact is, the better that you know the truth, the easier it will be for you to spot a counterfeit. And so doctrinally sound, faithful preaching helps to build up the immune system of the body. A people who are well-grounded, who have been well-taught, who know from the scriptures why they believe what they believe, such people will not be easily taken in by wolves, by false teachers. For such people are mature. They are not children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4, 14. Faithful shepherds also need to be able and willing to directly confront the wolves who would come in sheep's clothing. This means that they must not simply nod along politely with those who would bring dangerous or heretical ideas into the church, but rather shepherds must be willing to guard the flock. The hireling flees. The hireling is unwilling to enter a difficult or uncomfortable conversation. Faithful shepherds, in contrast, love the sheep and love the truth enough that they are willing to enter the ring when necessary. I think this is helpful for addressing a misconception about the nature of shepherds. As D.A. Carson writes, many people in the industrialized West are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate, with their arms full of cuddly lambs, and the English adjective of good does nothing to dissuade us from these misconceptions. But the shepherd's job was tiring, manly, and sometimes dangerous. Close quote. All right, you think of the metaphor of a shepherd. A shepherd had to be an out outdoorsman. Jesus says the good shepherd will face down the wolves. So I think you ought to, we should think more cowboy than sheep cuddler, right? More farmer than petting zoo. This is tough work, dangerous work. This is a shepherd. Remember what David said as he tried to convince Saul that he could face Goliath. First Samuel 17, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Right? You think you're going to try to convince somebody that I should fight a giant. Right? What's on his resume? I've been a shepherd. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's a shepherd. That's a good shepherd. That's what pastors need to be like. To those considering the ministry, know that this is not a role for the faint of heart. Shepherds must be courageous, 
They must be able and willing to speak hard things when necessary. To endure attacks both from outside and inside the church. They must stand on the front lines and be prepared to be a primary target for spiritual warfare. For the enemy knows if he can strike the shepherds, he can scatter the sheep. Just consider how many sheep have been hurt because their shepherds have failed. Fallen into sin and temptation. Perhaps destroyed years of faithful ministry by falling into sin. And so shepherds must be strong. They must be courageous. They must know how to battle sin in their own lives. They must know how to diagnose and treat the ailments of their own souls so that they may have something to say to the souls who come to them for aid and guidance. They themselves must have robust communion with God. They must live out and display joy in God. For the fact is, it's very difficult to lead others where you haven't been yourself. Pastors, shepherds must feed the sheep. They must teach sound doctrine. They must rightly handle the word of truth. They must let the sheep hear the voice of their shepherd by faithfully and boldly proclaiming the whole counsel of God. They must help the injured, bind up the broken, seek the straying. They must counsel, encourage, pray, hold accountable, and help the flock battle sin and pursue the Lord. To our, as I said, this was a convicting week sermon preparation. To our congregation, on behalf of the elders, I say, we are here for you. We are still growing. We are far from perfect, but we do care about your souls and will always prioritize our people, for shepherds must love the sheep. So please reach out to us if you need help. Let's continue on. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus says here, I know my own, and they know me. Jesus, again, reminds us that he knows those who are his. Christ knows his sheep intimately and personally, and he gives an amazing example to illustrate the relationship between him and his sheep. Notice what he says here. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So Jesus says the union, the intimate knowledge between him and his sheep is like the knowledge between the Father and the Son. As I was preparing the sermon, this section put me at a loss for words. This is stunning, staggering. So catch this. You, Christian, one of Christ's sheep, you have now and will have in fullness one day a knowledge and communion with Christ that is in some way legitimately comparable to the relationship between the Father and the Son. What that all means, I don't know. But I can say this, it's not small. Jesus is not belittling the relationship when he says this. I know my own, and my own know me, just as... 
The Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows those who are his. He knows those whom the Father has given him, and he will draw them, he will keep them, and he will raise them up on the last day. John 6, 37 to 44. And it is these precious ones for whom the good shepherd says he lays down his life. I believe this text, therefore, plays into discussions on what we would call the extent of the atonement, this question of those for whom Christ died. Now, we won't spend too much time on this, but it's worth mentioning here that Christ says he lays down his life for his sheep. And in this context, it's clear that not all people are his sheep. His sheep are his elect. He knows them and they know him. They listen to his voice. It is the call of the shepherd that draws them into the fold. We see in the next section in verse 26, he will actually say that uh, to the Jews that the reason why they do not believe is because they are not his sheep. Much the same as we saw in John 6, Jesus explains their unbelief by pointing to this fact. So with this intimate connection established between sheep and shepherd, this personal knowledge, this statement that follows that his sheep will listen to his voice and his sheep will follow him and they will be brought into the fold. It is in this context, Christ says, I lay down my life for my sheep, for my elect, for those whom the Father has given to me. Our conviction is that the Bible's teaching is that Christ's work is effectual. That is, Christ didn't merely die to make salvation a possibility. He did not provide a hypothetical atonement that needed to be actualized by the free will of man. Rather, he laid down his life for his sheep and has secured an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9. Christ has purchased for himself a people, a particular people, whom the Father had given to him from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Christ died for his sheep, and not one of his blood-bought sheep will be lost. For as Jesus says in the next verse, let's keep reading. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So follow what Christ says. Jesus says that he has his sheep, and notice that they are his before he calls them. Right? Otherwise, he could not say, I must bring them also. So how then can they be his sheep before he calls them? Now, from a human point of view, this would kind of seem backwards. We might typically think that someone becomes Christ's sheep when they respond to his call and join the fold. Right? We want to root everything in our decision. But that's not what Jesus says. He says he has other sheep that are not yet in the fold, he must bring them. 
They are already his sheep. They are his before they are called and before they are brought in. Verse 29 explains of the sheep that they are his because his father has given them to him. These were his sheep before they were called. They are those whom the father has given him and they are those he will lay down his life to save. Jesus says, I have other sheep. They have not yet been called or brought in. I must bring them also. As John Piper puts it, the word must here is crucial. Your salvation was included in this must. This is the must of divine necessity. Close quote. Jesus says, essentially, the Father has chosen them and given them to me. They are mine. I will lay down my life for them. I must bring them. It will happen. The Son will not fail to bring in those whom he has ransomed. He will not fail to receive the reward for his sufferings. I must bring them also. So Christian, at the time when Christ said this, you were among those sheep who had not yet been brought in. Christ said he knew those who were his. As Ephesians 1.4 says, they were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Christ knows his own. And so he looks ahead, knowing his sheep, and he says, I have others. They are mine. They are not yet in this fold. I must bring them also. Praise the Lord for his loving kindness that we are among that number, that he has brought us in. Now, one of the common arguments against uh, this perspective uh, that Jesus lays out here, this biblical doctrine of predestination, one of the common arguments is that it undermines evangelism. The argument goes like this. If God has decided in eternity past those whom he's going to save, then why do we need to evangelize? Right? It's going to happen if it's part of the sovereign purposes of God, so why would we bother? Now what I hope we see from this text is how Jesus turns that argument on its head. Right? This verse and the amazing sovereign purposes of God that underlie it give us some of the greatest reasons and motivations for evangelism. Right? Far from undermining evangelism, verses like John 10, 16 powerfully motivate evangelism. It is, in fact, these very words that are inscribed on the tombstone of the famous missionary, David Livingston. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Now, why is this so powerfully motivating for evangelism? Well, look at this verse. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So these two parts here, Christ's other sheep, those not yet in the fold, he says that he is committed to bringing them in. And then he declares, they will listen to my voice. So those other sheep, those others that are mine that the Father has given me, when they hear my voice, they will listen. They will come. They will be brought in to the fold. 
John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. And so here's why this is such an encouraging text for evangelism. The success of the mission does not depend on our abilities. It does not depend on our persuasiveness. It does not depend on our coolness. Thank the Lord. The success of the mission Christ has given to his church rests in the sovereign purposes of Almighty God. As we go out with the gospel, as we bring the voice of the shepherd through his word, we can be confident that there will be some. There are sheep out there who will be brought into the fold, who will respond in faith to the voice of the shepherd heard through the preaching of his gospel. The Father will draw them. The Spirit will cause them to be born again, and they will see and enter the kingdom of God, John 3. And notice as well, this gives such great grounding to the fact that we do not need to modify the message in any way. The gospel is not defective seed. Our task is to simply bring the voice of the shepherd to his sheep and trust that his sheep will listen to his voice. And notice as well, there is a, an essential component to this, uh, an essential means, as the Apostle Paul puts it uh, in Romans 10. He says this. First he says, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So yes, God has predestined his elect. He has chosen them in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. And their salvation is certain. And we see that the means by which God has chosen to call his people, the means by which God, uh, by which Christ calls his sheep, is the preaching of his gospel, the preaching of his word. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And so we, Christ's ambassadors, uh, his representatives of his kingdom in this world, have the glorious privilege of being part of the work he is doing to bring in his sheep. Right? As with everything in life, the sovereignty of God is not an excuse for inaction. God is certainly completely sovereign over whatsoever comes to pass. Right? He has declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46. Uh, he is the one working all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Uh, he is sovereign over, in, and through it all. And he constantly tells us in his word, get to work. Strive, labor, pray, build, evangelize, preach. God usually works through what we would call ordinary means. Right. Just consider your own story. You, Christian, how did you come to faith in Christ? Well, there's kind of two levels to that answer, aren't there? 
the behind-the-scenes answer, if we were to take these texts we've looked at, is that God had predestined you from before the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ had purchased your salvation, and at just the right time, the Holy Spirit moved in your heart to call you effectually. He removed your heart of stone and granted you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. He moved in your heart and has been working to sanctify you, and he will keep you for the day of glorification. John 6, 44. So that's the one level. That's the theological answer. That's what happened behind the scenes, behind the curtain, so to speak. But from your side of things, what happened on the stage continue the metaphor, is that someone cared enough to preach the gospel to you. Someone opened scripture and told you about Christ. Someone brought you to church or Sunday school or summer camp or VBS, and you learned about Christ dying and rising again and offering the free gift of salvation. Someone was used by God as the means by which you heard the voice of your shepherd. And you then believed and were saved. This is evangelism. This is missions. And we, the people of God, have the privilege of being used by God in this way. We get to participate. We get to be a part of the glorious work of bringing others to Christ, of making disciples of the nations. God has ordained the ends as well as the means by which he is accomplishing those ends. Now to put that in simpler terms, we could say God has planned the end result, right? He has planned the goal as well as the way in which he will reach that goal. Salvation for his people is the goal and his people preaching the gospel is the primary way that he accomplishes that goal. So brothers and sisters, let us be inspired. Jesus Christ has purchased a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and he will bring them to himself. Christ has other sheep. He has other sheep in Altona. He has other sheep in Gretna. He has other sheep in Schanzenfeld, Winkler, Blumenfeld, Neuenberg, Rosa, Gnadenfeld, Crystal City, wherever we are. He has other sheep that are not of this fold, and he must bring them also. May they hear the voice of their shepherd through us, his people. May we faithfully and wisely proclaim his gospel of free grace to all who will hear. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will be one flock, one shepherd. Now in verses 1 to 5, Christ spoke of calling his sheep out from among the communal sheep pen, which we looked at last week. And by this, he probably meant his elect people being called out from among the Jews. And he was calling them to follow him. And we saw an example of that with the blind man, kind of brought out from uh, under the, the Jewish leaders who kicked him out of the synagogue, and he became a follower of Christ. So here now, he speaks of these others who will join the flock and they will become one flock. And by this, he likely means the Gentiles, the nations. 
Praise the Lord, Christ did not only come to be the Jewish Messiah to save the Jews, but to be the Savior of the world. And so our assignment is to disciple the nations, Matthew 28. To bring Christ the inheritance that he was promised by his Father. And actually, in this town, we have an amazing opportunity right here. Right? Whatever your views of emigration might be, the fact is, the nations are coming to us. Many, many people who have never heard the gospel are moving to this community. Many people who are from this area are now growing up in completely secular homes. The days when you could assume that everyone growing up in a Mennonite town would be familiar with the gospel, those days are behind us. And so let us be praying for and seeking out opportunities to reach the lost right here where we live. Let us become a people that speaks of evangelism, that stirs one another on as we speak about our friends and neighbors and coworkers who are lost and need Christ. Let us be a mission-minded people. And while there is great opportunity right here in front of us, we remember that part of the calling of the church is truly world evangelization. There are yet people groups in this world who are unreached. There are thousands, perhaps millions of people who do not have the Bible translated into their native tongue. There are many places with no faithful Bible preaching churches. And so there is yet work to be done. There ought to be a holy discontentment among the people of God that there are places in this world where Christ is not being worshipped, where his lordship is not being proclaimed, and that there are people perishing without ever having heard the gospel message. And so our aim, when we believe every faithful church must have, is to be a sending and a planting church. Our hope is that there will be people from this congregation who we are one day able to lay hands on and send out as missionaries, church planters, and elders. Our medium-term goal is our desire is to see faithful churches in every single town in Manitoba and eventually the world. We desire to raise up leaders to send out church planters and missionaries. As comfortable as we may feel here, as sweet as our fellowship is with one another, we must remember that churches must not become ingrown. We must not be overly inward-focused. We have a mission in this world. We have a charge to keep. We have work to do. Christ has other sheep that are not in this fold. He must bring them also. Let us go and seek those sheep. Labor in his fields, for they are white for harvest. Amen.